Hello and welcome once again to Wrestling Memories Online. I'm your host, Glenn Broggett, along with my partner in crime, my co-host, noted pro wrestling historian and author of some very cool books. Oh, it's so wonderful to have him uh, back chatting with me and a wonderful guest today, Mr. George Shire. George, the holiday season kind of crept up on us, didn't it? Hey, Glenn, it's always great to be on Wrestling Memories. And yeah, Christmas just around the corner, but we have a great, Wrestling Memories program for today. I want to tell you, <laughs> I've read his book. It's called The Mat, The Mob, and Music. Mm-hmm. And I'm going to say right up front before I give his name, I'm going to say if you haven't got that book yet, you're going to want to order it. And I'll bet you could still get it by Christmas with uh, Rush Delivery for that wrestling old wrestling fan on your list. But this is a fun book. This is an interesting book. This is a book with a lot of stuff in it, a lot of inside stuff. And our guest, I'm really honored to have with me today, with you, Glenn. Yes, sir. Tom Hankins. Tom, say hello, and boy, let's get this baby going. Well, hello, George. Hello, Glenn. And uh, glad to be here. And we're so glad to have you on, my friend, before I let George get into it. Uh, and I kind of want to segue into uh, what George uh, wants to chat with you about. By, by talking about, we were going online or off mic here before we started today. Uh, the way you two have kind of run similar paths when it comes to some of the pro wrestling uh, events up in the Midwest, up in Minneapolis. The way you guys kind of uh, were in the same I guess, vicinity, but never really cross paths. It's really quite interesting that it's been, what, how many years now, George, uh, since uh, this kind of uh, little game of tag has gone on between you and Tom to be able to finally speak today together? Well, as Tom noted uh, at the onset here, it's probably 40 years or better, 44 maybe. Uh, I live in the Twin Cities, as you know, Glenn, Mm -hmm. and I've been a fan of the AWA primarily since... uh, I was old enough to, I think, say the word wrestling. So uh, Tom was around here. And Tom, you can tell us. I think you were around the Twin Cities the very early 70s, 73 or 4, somewhere in there? Uh, that was 72, and then 73, I moved, went down to Tennessee, and started wrestling. But I was there 72 and 73. So I, think I think at the peak of the AWA right there. They had right. such talent that was unbelievable. Oh my and the reason I moved to Minneapolis, I worked. I was in Iowa. I worked on the railroad, and I saw they had an opening in Minneapolis. So I put in for it, and I got the job. I was going. I was determined to get Vern Gagne to train me, but he had other ideas. So never got that done. But I got up there and got to study all the great wrestlers like Ray Stevens and Nick Bockwinkel. I just sit at the matches and study them. And I guess I did see George there a few times, but I never really spoke to him. Never spoke to anybody, really. Well, that, that's unfortunate that we didn't get a chance to talk because old wrestling fans always have stuff to talk about. But you are talking about a great era, uh, 72, 73, 74. We had, like you said, Bachwinkle Stevens. We had uh, Ivan Koloff. We had Dusty Rhodes, Don Morocco, Billy Robinson, Jeff Ports, Red Bastine. Uh, and, the, and the list just goes, superstar Billy Graham. I mean, the list just goes on and on and on great talent roster so you could certainly get a good education as you were studying the oh yeah plus i would go to st louis for every card for a year and a half too and we could have bumped into each other there too and that's what's ironic because i i attended so many st louis cards in the uh late 60s to early 70s yeah i did too right up till 73 and well actually in 73 i started wrestling in st louis unbelievably well, I know you talk in your book about how St. Louis, and I totally agree with you on this, St. Louis was, as far as I was concerned, the mecca, the, the place to be, the, the greatest. And it wasn't even a territory. It was just a, a one-town promotion put on by uh, the great Sam Muchnick. And when you got to St. Louis, it was, it was the place you wanted to be. Oh, yeah. It, was the, it does, definitely was the mecca of pro wrestling then. And uh, Sam was a great guy, and I couldn't believe when they called me and wanted me to come down there and work TV. And I, I was shocked because I'd been working for an outlaw promotion in in uh, Kentucky for Saul Weingroff and the Von Bronner brothers. And uh, I talked to Gus Karras, who was a Kansas City promoter. He said, oh, you should have never worked for those guys. He said, Sam's going to get mad and blackball you. But then, oh, 
about two months later, I get a call from Bob Geigel. says, need you in Kansas City for TV tonight, and you can work St. Louis TV tomorrow. Those were out of the blue. And I said, okay. I said, we'll be there. Me and Dan Daniels is my tag team partner. So we went down there and had a, actually had a terrible match in Kansas City with Mike George, or St. Joe, I should say. But then the next day, I got to wrestle Jack Briscoe in St. Louis, and that was a real wrestling lesson. Jack Briscoe, I mean, I, I think you'd mentioned in your book how you were you were just kind of in disbelief that you were going to be in with the world champ. And didn't one of your friends ask you if you got put over or something? And <laughs> uh, Yeah, that was a guy I worked for, for the Mafia guy. His name was Fat Eddie, Eddie Wiedelstadt. And uh, yeah. he said, well, did you win? Did you win? I told him I wrestled the world. He said, did you win? I said, well, no, I didn't win. I wasn't supposed to. And I said, and I couldn't win. I said, no way I could beat him. He and said, what about Jack- Butch here? He was his big bodyguard. I said, no, nah, he'd, he'd take Butch apart in about 10 seconds. Well, why don't you, uh, you know, because now you've, you've alluded to a couple of things that as your book kind of progresses, and it is a, is a fascinating and revealing story, I will tell you that. Um, uh, I'll tell you up front, I think you're, you're a pretty brave guy for putting most of that stuff in there. I don't know if I was going to write a book if I do that, but what a, what a read. I enjoy it. It's part of my collection, and I'm honored to have it. So, And it's uh, going to be fun. Well, I, sure. I figure some of the guys got mad at me. At this point, I don't care. <laughs> well, yeah, maybe we get to that age. Uh, Tom, you're what, 60? I know you and I are fairly close. 68. 68? Okay. I knew yeah. we were fairly close. Um well, let, I'll tell you what. We want to talk about your book, The Map, The Mob, and Music by Tom Hankins. And it is available. We're going to let everybody know up front. It's available through crowbarpress.com. And you can order a copy. It's a phenomenal read. And it's one that, if you, like I said, if you're an old fan, if you're an old school fan before it became entertainment like it is today, you're going to like this book. You're going to enjoy it. It's some really revealing stuff. So I want to give you free reign. I want you to kind of just tell us some of the things you want to share. I know you told me online that you were going to talk a little bit about Lars Anderson. And Lars was always one of my favorite workers. I really enjoyed his work. I enjoyed his promos. And so I'd be interested. I'm always interested in some of the behind-the-scenes stuff. I know Lars has got some people that don't like him. It's always been that way. And uh, so I'm interested. Why don't you just kind of go along and share what you want with us? Okay. Well, I was sitting at home one day here in Los Angeles, and the phone rang. And it was this magnificent Zulu, Ron Pope. Mm-hmm. And he was, everybody knows he's a horrible wrestler, but he had a great look. But he was, he was just terrible in the ring. And Ripperly only had me teaming with him in Central California at times. And I hated working with him, but he was a nice guy. And uh, he called me up and said, you want to go to Hawaii and wrestle? I thought, what's he have to do with Hawaii? I think it's the time they chased him back from Japan. He must have stopped there. And he said, well, I said, who's booking over there? He said, Lars Anderson. I said, well, have him give me a call. And he said, okay. So I didn't think I'd hear anything. But about 10, 15 minutes later, a phone rings, and there's Lars calling me. And he'd never seen me before, but I guess Zulu told him the kind of promos I could cut. And Lars was desperate for talent because he like skipped out on paying lots of people. It wouldn't work there anymore. And uh, so the first night I got there, I, well, I went under the hood as Mr. Z. I had a big purple mask with a big Z on the front. And Lars had uh, Steve Collins, one of his wrestlers, pick me up at the airport. And he dropped me off about a block from the... Honolulu International Center, and uh, as I was walking in, people started yelling at me because I'd cut five weeks worth of promos here in L.A. and sent to uh, Lars, and I guess he showed them, and I guess they went over, and uh, people were screaming at me before I even got in the building. I thought, well, this is a good sign. That's good. And uh, so I got in. I met the guys that were there, but the only big names, really, were Tully Blanchard, Scott Casey, and Lars and uh, all the local guys. And uh, I went out first, I think, or second, and wrestled Mighty Milo. And uh, we had a decent match, although I accidentally hit his grandfather when he hit, come up behind me and hit me. I didn't know who it was. I turned around and swung, and it was this old man. And I knocked him on the floor. 
and Meadle charged me, and I went sliding across up into the front row, which is quite a distance in Honolulu, and uh, it turned out it was his grandfather. So I said, what's going on? He said, that's my grandfather. And I said, well, you should have smartened him up. Yeah. But anyway, got through that match. Then I got back in the dressing room, and Lars is standing there firing all his managers. He had like three or four local managers, and he fired them all at once and threw them out. Had the police escort them out of the building. Imagine he got away without paying them anything. Then he come over to me, and I thought, well, now what? He comes over to me and says, I want you to go out there, grab the mic, tell me you bought everybody's contract, and you got the fraternity of Z now. And you're going to offer $2,000 to anybody that can beat you and take your mask off and tell me you're going to be managing the guys here. And I knew their names, so I, I said, well, okay. So I walked out there. I got out to the rain. People were just booing again. And I don't know exactly what I said, but whatever I said was something, I guess it was some kind of racial slur against them. And all, here come the chairs flying. The chairs start flying in the ring. And I, well, so I thought, well, you know, I thought that great. I started a riot already. And uh, I kind of, I got out of there that time, got out of there and got to the back. But then I had to come out and manage Tully later against uh, Scott Casey. And uh, that time, I kind of weaved myself upside down in the ropes intentionally, like Dr. Bill Miller always did. Oh, yeah. I always took that move. I used it in about every match. And uh, I let Lars beat me with my chain that I carried in my boot. I had a chain. and let him beat me with it until he grabbed me, pulled me back. And there were more chairs flying at us, even though we lost the match, I think. So Lars says, well... He says, meet me at some some hotel. He said, meet me there at 1 o'clock. He said, and told me and Tully. He said, I'll pay you off. I'll get your pay off. And I thought, well, that's kind of weird. But we went over at uh, 1 in the morning. And Lars has lines of cocaine out on the table. And money, pile of money sitting there. And... Uh, he said, here, have, some, have, have a few lines. I said, no. I said, no, thanks. I knew he was planning on deducting them from my pay, mm. and I don't do coke anyway. So I have to ask uh, Tom uh, Tom about this. Uh, yeah. You talk about Lars Anderson and talk about some of the, the big matches on the island. Uh, was, was the big match the one that was never booked between uh, Lars and Leah Maivia? Some of their uh, battles, their classic rows that they had with the, the front office? Yeah, they were never booked, but they could have been <laughs> for a promo. It would have been great. Yeah, because Leo was as large as yell. Excuse me, as loud as Lars could yell. Leo was twice, could twice, doing twice over, and cut him a new one. And he and she did. They were taking me to the airport when I was leaving one day. They got in a fight in the car, arguing about I don't even remember what it was about. Something about the business. And they got in a big screaming match, and Leah pulled over to the side so she could concentrate on yelling. And she just went wild. I never saw anybody that mad in my life. And I could out argue Lars when it comes to getting paid, but he didn't have a chance with her. And uh, that was probably the strangest thing I saw over there, and also the most entertaining, probably. Was that the secret to the most entertaining? Was that the secret to to dealing with Lars is really standing up to him and not really taking his quote unquote shit when it came to payoffs and kind of sticking it to him yeah. and being that voice? Yeah, he tried to give me a hundred and fifty bucks. They worked four times that night, and Leo said it's the biggest crowd we've had in six years. She kept hugging me and thanking me just because of my promos. I said, I said this is way short, Lars. What do you mean way short? And I got in a big arg screaming match with him, and I ended up getting $500 from him. So, yeah, you had to stand up to him, and you had to be ready to fight with him, I guess. But that never came to that. One of the things that was always interesting to me about pro wrestling in general, uh, Tom, was that wrestlers would talk about going into certain promotions and not getting paid. Uh, Nick Bockwinkel's famous line was always, I don't care what you call me in the ring or introduce me as, but as long as you pay me, that's what he was concerned about. And right. yet some of these guys, when they would go into promoting their own matches, their own cards, they would try to not pay the boys and uh, try to 
cut back on what they said they were going to pay him, etc. And it, it just was so confusing to me because they had been there and done that, you know, lived it. Why would they be doing the same thing to their their workers now that they lived through in the past? And that, that bothered me. Lars was well paid. You know, Lars had no respect for anybody that I could see, except maybe Tor Kamada. And uh, I don't know, it's just his the way he worked. He brought in different bookers to try to build up. The, I got mad at him eventually and quit. I think I quit two or three times. He talked me into coming back because I loved Hawaii so much. It's like a free vacation, if nothing else. Pardon? Who were some of the bookers that he did bring in? Kevin Sullivan, Jerry Lawler, and Rocky Johnson. Now, when Rocky came in, they ran a big stadium show on August 5th, 1985, called Hot Summer Night. There were like 54 wrestlers there. And he had Bruiser Brody, Ric Flair, Antonio Inoki, all the Japanese stars. I mean, he had top talent from t- from the top of the card to the middle of it, at least. And uh, they drew, I think, 17, close to 17,000 people. And uh, I think that was their last really big successful show, or one of the last ones. And Rocky booked that. And once Rocky left from booking, Lars went back to it and... Uh, they ended up going out of business, I guess. So where does Ripper Collins play into that, though? I, we haven't mentioned his name, and he, he was around uh, Hawaii for quite some time. Where does Ripper Collins fall into the story uh, as, as the mid-'80s approach? And it's kind of uh, the promotion on its last legs here, but still trying to gain something with this big uh, super show at Aloha Stadium. Yeah, and Lord Blairs was there. Jim Crockett even flew in for it. It was, happened to be on Leah Maivia's birthday. It was August 5th, and, and Jim Crockett was there, and uh, in a pre, Andre in a, the Giant, everybody was there. In a pre-internet world, too, that amazes me, just the logistics alone to getting all of those guys there, let alone put on a show and then deal with the egos once the egos have landed and are at the arena, or the stadium in this case. Well, I was, yeah, I was shocked when I walked in the dressing room and saw the, the list of all the matches and the wrestlers, and it was, I counted it was 54 different people he had working there. Although a few, a couple guys didn't show up. Murdoch and Adonis didn't show up, which is probably good for them. I know Bruiser Brody got paid. You're not going to try to screw him over. And I'm sure the Japanese guys got paid. And since Rocky was handling the booking, I, that went pretty good, I guess. But uh, I know not long after that, Lars and uh, Leah got in trouble for extortion from the wrestling announcer. His name was Doug something. And uh, he wanted to open, he tried to open up opposition to him. And he, uh, they, they threatened him and he got it on tape or something. And I think they did some time for that. One of the questions that I always wanted, I'm going to ask you this, and I don't know if you know, but uh, when we're speaking of Lars Anderson, uh, Lars worked for the AWA up until about 75, March of 75. And mm-hmm. he actually came out and he announced to the crowd, he was Larry Hainimi, he was wrestling as Hainimi again in those days. And he announced right. that he was retiring from wrestling and he was going to wrestle Billy Robinson and that was going to be his last match. <laughs> Billy beat him, Lars was gone. And, of course, we know that he went back to becoming Lars Anderson and was wrestling, not only wrestling, but then promoting, as you are relating to. Um, I always wondered if there was a, a behind-the-scenes story where Vern Gagne and Larry Hainimi got into it and Vern basically told him this was it or if it was Lars's decision. But th- saying he was retiring, that was the part I never understood. Was there anything? Did you ever hear anything behind on that? Uh, no, I never did, but uh, it sounds logical. Although, in Hawaii, they brought one of uh, the AWA referees over. Uh, forget his name, Jim. He had uh, one deformed hand. Jim, was that a glove the Iron rep- Duke? Was that the Iron Duke? Jim Mitchell. Yeah. Iron, Duke, Iron yeah. Duke, yeah. He brought him over, so I don't, and he was refereeing for Vern, so I don't know if... They did have some kind of relationship, maybe, but I don't think Lars ever went back to the AWA after that. Jim Mitchell had an on-again, off-again relationship with Vern Gagne, so I don't know what the story was there. But Okay, well, you know, Lars Anderson, it's, it's an interesting character, I, I will say that. 
Um, he wanted to run a whole tour of the South Pacific Rim, he said. Mm-hmm. But I remember Moondog Moretti telling me, he said that he got, Lars left him stuck in New Zealand with no money, didn't pay him, and took off and left him stuck there, stranded there. And I just pictured Ed Moretti standing in the sand with his suitcase next to him watching their plane take off. And I thought, am I getting myself into this? Because Lars said he wanted to run a tour of the Pacific Rim. And I said, oh, I don't know about this. But I ended up quitting before he tried it. Well, you had mentioned in your book about starting out and in the Goulas area. And yeah. that was an interesting territory. So why don't you share a little bit about those early days with us? Well, it was. Uh, I hadn't really been trained. Harley Race smartened me up on the business. And... Uh, so I knew how everything worked, but I never really had any training except for being my tag team partner, Dan Daniels. We'd go down to the ring every time it was set up and work out. Mm-hmm. And we did this for a couple of years. In 69, I decided, well, that's another story. I'll get to that. But we worked out in my backyard. And we made mats and worked out. And uh, We were in the ring one Sunday afternoon in Cedar Rapids, Iowa, working out. And the promoter at that time was Larry Lewis. And he went down the dressing room and brought up Gus Karras, Pat O'Connor, Bob Geigel, Roger Kirby, Omar Atlas, Danny Little Bear, Rufus Jones, I think. And they all sat there in the front row. And Gus said, okay, let's see what you got, boys. And I thought, oh, oh well, this is it. I said, the whole thing's going to rely on this. So Dan and I started working on a match we'd pretty much been working on for a couple of years. After about 10 minutes, Gus stopped us and said, okay, okay, that's enough. And I thought, uh-oh, so we screwed up somewhere. He said, no, he said, you boys are ready. He said, oh. he said you call Nick Goulas, tell him he'd been working for me, and, I'll, and if he calls me, I'll back up whatever you tell him. So I told Gus, okay, I'll do that. And so I got it. I wrote to Goulas, and uh, then I, he actually gave me his number, and I called him. And uh, talked him into booking us. He didn't know he didn't have any experience. So we went down there, and I think it was March of 73. And uh, our first match was in Johnson City, Tennessee, against uh, Dandy Jack Donovan and uh, Tom Shaft, if anybody remembers him. He was from Milwaukee originally, and Cesar Pabone trained him. Right. However, it was his first match also, and he lied to Goulas and told him that he had experience. So there's Jack Donovan, you know, a 30-year veteran or whatever, in the ring with three guys who never worked a match before. And I feel sorry for Jack, but he talked us through it. And uh, we got so much heat, though, me and Dan did. We were doing a hippie gimmick. This was in 73 in, in Tennessee, and fans just hated us. So we built on that. We were the opening match, and we took away all the heat for the night from the, everybody else. And I didn't know enough about that at the time, about you know, taking their heat. And it got everybody there mad at me, at us. So Nick calls me in the office the next day. He said, you were great. You were great. I said, I was surprised. I said, well, well thank you. He said, the greatest stinkers ever. Then he started bitching. You don't even know how to tie up. You don't know. He goes on and on. And I was kind of laughing at him. And he was going to fire us. But Jack Donovan walked in the office right then and talked him into keeping us. So we stayed around a few months working for Goulas, driving from one end of the territory to the other, nonstop driving, basically. And, uh, we went to Memphis one Saturday to wrestle Jackie Fargo and uh, Jeff or Jerry Jarrett on TV, and uh, they were going over, of course, and uh, we were going to split the falls with them. And uh, we took they they took the first fall. I was in the ring with Fargo in the second fall, and it came time for me to pin him, and I went to pin him, but he grabbed my trunks and pulled me over and pinned me without telling me, and we lost the match. I didn't care that I got pinned, but he should have said something to me. Mm-hmm. And uh, I just, off the top of my head, I just said, oh, F you, Fargo. I said, fuck you, Fargo. And uh just happened to be the TV camera was right on my face when they said that. It was live TV. I didn't even realize the camera was had me on, you know. 
in on their right in this picture. And when I got back to Nashville, Nick, he was really mad. He said, "What'd you do down there?" And uh, I said, "Well." I said, what do you mean? He said, the TV station manager called me and said, if we ever put you guys on TV again, he'd cancel wrestling. So you know how long we've been on that station? And I started, I started laughing at him. I said, no, how long, Nick? How long have you been on that station? He said, 27 years we've been on there. And I don't know. I just started laughing. I couldn't help it. I knew, I knew that was it. So I, I just started laughing at him. He said, you think I'm funny? I said, I think you're hilarious, Nick. Every time I see you, I can't stop myself from laughing. He says, well, you're fired. I said, thanks. And uh, I'd already talked to Saul Weingroff about going to work for him. But while uh, we worked for Goulas, he did things like, I think he thought would scare us off, like had us blade one night, went out of the blue in Bowling Green, Kentucky. It was a tag match. He wanted all four guys to bleed. And he gave the referee one razor blade to pass around to us. And so, I mean, I had no trouble cutting myself open. We had no problem with that. And he'd have somebody come up to me and say, oh, they call me the dentist. I'd like to knock out teeth. I said, yeah, well, they call me the decapitator because I'd like to rip off heads. And so he didn't try anything that night. Uh, and we got along with most of the wrestlers pretty good, except uh, Jimmy Garvin. And uh, Terry Garvin, Terry Garvin is, well, he, everybody knew he was gay, too. He kept hitting on me. I kept telling him no, but he didn't really bother me. He just never let up. But Jimmy Garvin, I heard him bad-mouthing us to the promoter in Jackson, Tennessee. And uh, Jimmy was just starting out. I at the got pretty mad at him and uh, still don't like him. <laughs> yeah, nothing of really consequence came from Nick, except we got our first experience. But Sam Bass had given me uh, Goulas' number, I mean, uh, Weingaroff's number before, a couple weeks before. He said, you'll probably need this eventually. And I said, well, thanks, you know, and I took it. And uh, sure enough, when Nick fired us, I uh, called Saul. He said, yeah, send me a letter with pictures. I need a heel team right away down here. Said, I need you to work on top. And here we've only been in the business a few months, and he was going to put us on top out of Paducah, Kentucky, which was a forerunner to Angelo Poffel's promotion there. Right. Angelo and Lanny were working there. But Phil Golden was the promoter, the money man. So we went to work for uh, Saul. And our first day there, we did TV, and we cut a promo that was so outrageous. The fans in the studio started throwing stuff at us. I'd never seen that at TV before. I thought, oh, maybe they do that down here. But after the interview, they, all the boys said, that was great, that was great. They said, can you back it up in the ring? I said, well, I guess we'll find out Monday, won't we? We had a pretty good run there. We worked on top with Joe Ball and Billy Helm. They were the top babyface team. Then the Von Brauners were, of course, the world's tag team champion, but Ball and Helm were the southern tag team champions. And... uh Dan and I traded the titles back and forth. We were the Reed brothers, R-E-I-D, and we traded the titles back and forth. Funny story about uh, Ball and Helm. The first night I wrestled him, I think it was Fort Campbell, Kentucky, and Joe Ball had tape all over his forehead. Half of his forehead was taped up real bad, real big. T- and he asked me, he said, don't work on the cut. He says, I've been blading so many nights that i got to let it heal. And I said, okay. I didn't plan on it, but we went to tie up, and the first thing we did is accidentally bump heads real hard, and the blood starts pouring out of his bandages. So at that point, I figured, what the heck, and I grabbed him, ripped him off with my teeth, and started to act like I was gnawing on his cut, and he said, go ahead, just work on it. So we did that, and then I bladed, and then Dan bladed. So the three of us are covered in blood, all because I accidentally bumped his head. We got back to the dressing room. Saul said, what happened? I said, well, it was, it was an accident. I said, I guess it was my fault because I bumped his head. And Saul said, well, that was okay. I said, the fans liked it. Cause it, was, we were there. it was a real bloodbath. And it wasn't even the main event. So uh, he treated us good and kept us in the main events most every night. Usually against Ball and Helm, but we wrestled around Star and Jerry Barber, Mike Pappas. George Strickland, 
Uh, I can't even remember all the guys down there. Tom, one of the t- things. Oh, one sorry. of the things that uh, your book tells us is just by the title that you you kind of went back and forth on your careers from wrestling to music, and then you talked about the mob. Um, kind of take us into the the music business a little bit because I know you were in that all the time, basically, but wrestling as well. Well, that's true. When I was uh, about 14 years old, I started a rock band in Iowa. And uh, just about the right time when the Beatles came out and everything, and uh, we started drawing big crowds to our dances or the parties we played and stuff. And then I had a manager contact me, wanted me to be, wanted us to be his band that would call the Untouchables, and he would manage us and get our bookings. So I said, that sounds good to me. So I talked my parents about it, and they said, yeah, go ahead. They talked to Al, and they said, go ahead. So I went, we went on the road, not on the road, but we played like four or five nights a week, even though we were in school. And uh, we were making actually pretty good money. But found out Al was getting like $1,000 a night for us playing, and uh, he was paying us 25 apiece. And when I found that out, I went nuts, fired him, and started doing the booking myself. And it was at this time that Dick Douglas, the guitar player, and me, we were coming back into Cedar Rapids after playing a concert in Des Moines. And I looked in this greasy spoon diner window called the Flapjack Inn in Cedar Rapids. I said, look, there's Chuck Berry sitting in there. And Dick said, no, it's not. I said, yeah, that's Chuck Berry. And I slammed on my brakes, turned the car around, and went drove up. Sure enough, it was Chuck Berry sitting there at the counter all by himself. So we went in, sat down next to him on each side of him, talked to him. And he was mad because the band that, uh, he was mad because the service he was getting, but he was mad about the band that backed him up that night. He said they were terrible. He says, it's every night, he says, I got another band backing me up, and they're all terrible. They don't know my songs. I said, well, we know all your songs. We know every one of them, which I kind of lied, but I think we did know most, like 90% of them. And uh, I talked to him. I got the owner of the ballroom out of bed at 3 in the morning. He came down and opened up and let us play for Chuck, and Chuck hired us on the spot. And we played with him for three months until we went back to school again. That was before my senior year. Mm-hmm. So I got to play with him for three months. And we also toured with the Dave Clark Five and the Animals and Everly Brothers, Kingsman, a lot of groups, Ike Turner. Well, the Doors, we came to California and after we quit Hunsinger and got out of high school, we came to Los Angeles in 66. We actually came out here first during spring vacation just to playing a battle of the bands and we stopped in the whiskey a go-go to see the chambers brothers and a group called the doors was opening for them i thought oh what a weird name for a band the doors and we went in and uh jim morrison and we saw the doors and jim morrison did the whole show with his back to the audience wearing a greasy jacket like he'd been working on his car or something but they were just they were incredible i'd never heard anything like that Made me think I'd better give up. I said, I can't play like that. And then here, we come out here, moved out here, signed with the new manager, and he said, here, I got a surprise to show you. He drove us down Sunset Boulevard to the Hullabaloo Club. It used to be the Moulin Rouge Supper Club. It was a big, giant club that's turned into, I guess, a big hippie club. And there on the billboard, giant billboard facing Sunset Boulevard was our name. And the doors were opening for us. And I thought, Right away, I thought, oh, no, how am I going to follow Jim Morrison on stage? I said, no way. But we were all setting up our equipment, and I started talking to Ray Manzarek, their keyboard player. We decided we, neither of us had enough equipment to play in that big place, so we pooled all our equipment together with them, and uh, it sounded pretty good. And I did my best to follow Jim, and I guess I looked over the side of the stage, and he was standing there and gave me a thumbs up. So I appreciated that, but I knew I wasn't as good as him. I don't think hardly anybody was. But we became friends with him, and we uh, 
traveled through California with them, playing a lot of shows with them. And then uh, they got signed to a record label, and they took off right away. And I never saw Jim after that. Before that, here's one of the X-rated parts of my book. Uh, I used to drop acid with him. We'd go sit on his rooftop at a place in Venice Beach, mm-hmm. drop acid with him. He'd sit up there and write poetry and write songs. Some of them were terrible, and some were turned into hit songs. So I had quite an experience with him. A lot of fun. I, I want to ask: Was was uh, were you? Uh, did you ever encounter like, around that same time? Uh, they had they were occupying the castle. Uh, Arthur Lee from Arthur Lee and uh, of Love Fame. Did you ever uh, cross paths with him when you were in L.A.? Uh, yeah, yeah. I met him. I didn't know him real well, but I met him a couple of times. Yeah, they were they were real big out here then. Yeah, give like I still listen to them the, sometimes. Give us a little bit about the Fat Eddie part of your your adventures. After I was working for Saul down south, and he said uh, he wanted to send me to Mississippi for a couple months. But I couldn't start for a couple of weeks, and I said, well, okay. So I drove back up to uh, well, Iowa. My wife had moved back to Iowa from St. Paul, and I went back to Iowa. And uh, her mother was a nanny for this mafia guy named Fat Eddie or Big Eddie, we call him Fat Eddie. We call him a lot of things behind his back. But uh, he said, uh, you want to be my warehouse manager? I had bleach blonde hair, and I don't know what he thought. I said, oh, I said, no, I'm going to Mississippi to wrestle. He said, you make a lot more money with me. I said, oh, I said, thanks, but no, I don't think so. And uh, so a couple of days later, I started out going, going to Mississippi. And after about an hour, I thought thought about it. I turned around and drove back to Cedar Rapids and went to Eddie. I said, okay, I'll take the job. So he made me his warehouse manager. A few days later, he called me and said, do you want to be my general manager? I said, sure. So he said, well, I'm going to pick you up and pick you up. And we're going to go to Utah. I said, what? He said, oh. I said okay. I figured I'd take a trip to Utah the next day. He said, we're going in half hour, so I'll be there and pick you up. This is like 10, 30, 11 o'clock at night. So I get in the car with Eddie and the head of the whole porn division, I guess it was, for the mafia from Cleveland, Al Goldman, was with Eddie. And uh, we were riding in the car and they were talking. And all of a sudden they started talking about, oh, this guy owes us $50,000. Should we kill him or should we collect it? And Al turns around and looks me right in the eye and says, what should we do, kid? What should we do? I said, oh, I said, kill him. I was just kidding. I thought they were kidding me. I said, I'll kill him. He said, no, nah, we're going to send you to collect the money when we get back. And I just laughed. I thought they were kidding me. Well, they weren't kidding me. They sent me, <laughs> me and, and uh, his bodyguard, Butch. He was a big black guy, about 6'4", all muscle, former football player. And we went to collect the money from this guy. It was only about a mile from Eddie's office. All we did is walk, like we drove over to his place. I just sat down in the chair, and Bush walked up to the desk, put his hands on the desk, went nose to nose. The guy said, pay me so I don't have to hurt you. The guy jumped out of his chair. Got had I couldn't believe he had $50,000 sitting in there, but he did. And he got it out, and Bush said, throw in $2,000 for us for coming over here to get it. And the guy did. So here I made $1,000 just sitting there in the chair. Went back, gave the money to Eddie, the 50000 He gave us another 1000 each. So there I made $2,000 in about a half hour and didn't do anything. I thought, well, this is a good job. So pretty soon I was running all of his adult bookstores all the way from, uh, well, Indiana to Utah and every place in between. And uh, I'd collect the money out of the movie arcades and collect all the money out of the sales they made make bank deposits and stuff, and I'd hire crooks stealing from him, and, and fire crooks, hire crooks, crooks hiring and firing crooks. Was there ever Everybody any, was stealing. During all of this that you uh, were ever afraid for your own safety or life? No, but I had a, well, one time we were, it was actually after I left Eddie, one of his guys said, I got to go to Chicago and uh, I got a deal I got to make with these Mexican guys in Chicago. 
I didn't know what kind of deal it was or anything. I figured it was some kind of drug deal or something, but I went with him anyway. And uh, actually that time, those guys came in with shotguns. I thought, well, this could be it. <laughs> but nothing happened. Wow. <laughs> nothing happened, and the deal didn't even go down. And so we drove back to Iowa. But that was the only time I really felt... You know, like something was going to happen. I I knew the FBI was watching me, watching us from the first time I went with Eddie to Utah. I just had a feeling they were watching us. I saw a big grate up in the ceiling. I said, they're probably filming from up there. And they were. Uh I couldn't believe it. As soon as I quit Eddie, I got mad at him and quit after about a year, I guess. I took all the keys to his store and threw them at him. And... I guess I was a better shot than I thought because I hit him right between the eyes with him. And that was a big ring of keys, and that really made him mad. But Butch wouldn't do anything about it, his bodyguard, because Butch was my best friend at the time. Butch just shook his head and out, and Butch told me later he thought it was great, thought it was funny. But then I left Eddie. I hadn't been home 10 minutes. The FBI called me on the phone and said, oh, I understand you're not working for Eddie anymore. I'd like to talk to you. So I went and talked to them, but they were pretty incompetent in the whole thing. First interview I did with them, they forgot to turn the tape recorder on. I sat there and talked for two hours, and they realized there's no tape going. So I went back to them a couple of other times and talked, but I really didn't have anything to tell them that I did anything illegal. Now, didn't, uh, didn't one of them do some time or something? Uh, yeah, they both did. Uh, Eddie did for taxes. He did seven years. And Al Goldman, I think he's still in jail out here in Los Angeles. They caught him about 20 years ago for, I'm not sure what exactly they caught got him for. but And I'd moved out here to get away from him because uh, I'd had some couple incidents with him in Iowa after I quit. So I'd moved out to L.A. And here the whole bus went down about three blocks from my house. And Al was living there. Well, I know eventually so talk you about get back to wrestling. And okay. I understand that part of it. I want you to share some of the legendary stories of a guy named Dr. Jerry Graham. Well, there were so many of them that I don't know where to start. But if you've uh, ever heard any stories about Jerry Graham that sounded crazy and wild, I can guarantee you they were true. First story I ever heard about him, Dr. Bill Miller told me in St. Louis. He said, oh, Jerry had a flat tire on the way to TV wrestling, and he was dressed to wrestle in his trunks and boots and uh, had a flat tire, didn't know what to do. So he got out, opened up the hood of his car, took out his blade, slid himself from ear to ear. So there's this 350-pound, 400-pound wrestler standing in the middle of the street in his wrestling gear with blood running down him. And somebody stopped to help him. He jumped in the car and said, quick, take me to the TV station. Yeah, why would you want to go to the hospital if you're bleeding? If you go to the radio, you lose all the effect. So uh, he took, I guess he took him to the TV station. And that was the first Jerry Graham story I heard. But then in 1981, this is right after the wrestling convention in Houston. I know George was there. I was there. And I, I was, was there, too. Yeah. And... Uh, and we, we they, Yeah, Paul Bosch and Nick Bockwinkle and Luthez and Eddie Mansfield kind of talked me into getting back into wrestling. And Paul even said he'd give me a shot down in Texas if I got back in shape. So I came back to L.A. and started lifting weights and got back in shape. Never made it back to Texas, though. And uh, went to work for LaBelle, Mike LaBelle. There's a guy, everybody, I thought it was just me hated him, but it turns out everybody that worked for him hated him because he had no respect for the business, didn't like the business, and he killed it here in L.A. But we went to work for him for, well, he put us on top, too. He didn't have any heel teams on top except the Scorpions from Mexico. And the first night we came in, we they put us in the main event in San Bernardino, and uh against Chris Adams and Ringo Rigby. And the Scorpions started complaining. Well, it was actually their match with Ringo and Chris. We were in the audience, and we'd come running out of the audience at the end of the match and then jumped in the ring and attacked 
you know, Rigby and Adams. And the Scorpions afterward complained and said, you're going to take our spot. I said, well, go talk to Ernesto. I said, I didn't book this. So we and we did take their spot, but the wrestling by then was almost dead in Los Angeles. Now, by contrast, by contrast, though, you talked about Mike LaBelle. Now, what was it? Was it a day and night uh, difference between him and Gene uh, as far as uh, you dealing with him and your relationship with, with LaBelle's? Well, Gene at least cared about wrestling and cared about the business. But Mike didn't care. He just cared about the money. And uh, although Gene could get nasty sometimes, he put me in the ring with the shoot once with Johnny Mantell. Thought he was going to... That's before I'd gotten booked, I'd gotten booked out of here. I had a friend I was working out with in the ring down at the Olympic, and they, they saw us. They brought Johnny Mantell and Terry Sawyer down to the ring with them, and Bobby Bockwinkle, who was a referee out here. And uh, the guy I was teaching, I'd only trained him for like three or four weeks. <coughs> Excuse me. <clears throat> Excuse me. And uh, he said, get in the ring with Sawyer. I told him, I said, don't worry. I said, just feed him your parts and work with him. I said, it should go fine. Well, it was, I didn't know that he wanted him to shoot. He wanted him to shoot and try to scare Matt off. And he got, got Matt in the ankle lock right away, and Matt started tapping out and yelling, okay, I quit, I quit. Sawyer kept putting the pressure on. And I was ready to get up in the ring, kick him in the head, but uh, then the, the, it was Leo Garibaldi stopped it. They said, and he looks at me and said, okay, you're next. And I thought, well, first thing I'm going to do, I'm going to kick him in the balls. This is, this is a shoot. But he put me in with Johnny Mantell, who was wrestling as the hood at the time. And I didn't know what to think. And Johnny didn't know exactly what was going on. Leo said, okay, go. And I grabbed Johnny, got him in a uh, crucifix, and pinned him in about five seconds. And Leo kept hollering, shoot, shoot, shoot. But it was too late. When I I'd already put him, I slammed the mat in my hand three, my hand on the mat three times. And I jumped up and said, "Well, I won, Leo. How do you like it?" I guess he didn't like it, but he still wouldn't book me. And Johnny left not long after that. And it wasn't until Tom Ernesto came in as Booker that I convinced him to book us. Tom Ernesto, uh, longtime fans will know, was one half of the famous Assassins team with Joe Hamilton. No, you know, I guess I never met him. Even when I went to Georgia, no, I never did meet him. Well, he and Ernesto was, uh, I don't know if he lost all his booking ideas or what. By the time he got to L.A., I think he'd already killed Detroit and some other towns. And the time he got out of here and he was given mon- or wrestlers like El Monstro, it was uh, just unwatchable. I was even embarrassed to be in the ring at times. There's one time Mondo Guerrero and I were supposed to go to a 30-minute Broadway. And after about 10 minutes, I said, why don't you just pin me so we can go home? And he said, okay, good idea. So I let him pin me, and Ernesto never said a word about it. Everybody was kind of doing their own finishes at that time because they knew it was the end of it. I think that was the last match they held at the L.A. Sports Arena that LaBelle held. Then Vince came in afterwards as his so-called partner. But he only let LaBelle work with him on two shows, and then he booted him out and just took the territory. Sounds familiar. So you left the wrestling business. Uh, You've gotten back into music. Well, I have now, yeah. I'm out playing with my band now, Chicago Mad Dog, I call myself, and the Bad Dogs. And we play blues and rock, but mostly blues. And... uh, but I've been I'd been in bands and playing the music even when I was working for the mafia. And in fact when we were down in Tennessee working for Goulas, uh these strippers we met took us to a bar down there, Mickey Finn's it was called. They were having a jam session. And it was part of the Marshall Tucker band and part of Charlie Daniels band were jamming. And I walked up to him and told him we were from Chicago. And uh, we wanted to sit in with them if we could and use their instruments. Amazingly, they agreed and let us up on stage. And we played a couple of songs with them and then uh, a couple of long songs. 
And then they said, Charlie Daniels is looking for two guys just like you. So we went up to Charlie, took us up to Charlie's house in Mount Juliet, Tennessee, the next day. And Charlie auditioned us and hired us. But then he told us, I told him, well, we're wrestlers, too. We, have to, we wrestle some nights. He said, well, you're going to have to make a choice, playing with me or wrestling, because we're going to have overlapping dates. So we told Charlie, made a mistake, and told him, well, we're going to stick with wrestling. We worked too long to get here. Probably a mistake, but I had so much fun in wrestling that I don't regret it that much. Okay, guys, we're getting towards the uh, the top of the hour here, and uh, boy, the the, the time does fly by, uh, George, and we we, want to wrap up uh, with with this segment. George, do you have any uh, questions? I know we have many more that we've merely scratched the surface with with Tom Hankins, but uh, before we go, you got some uh, more stuff in closing? Well, I would say that maybe we could have Tom on again at some point. We're always welcome to having uh, repeat guests, and definitely I want to remind folks again You want to get The Mat, The Mob, and Music by Tom Hankins. It is an incredible read, a story of a a wrestler, a somewhat mobster, and a musician. And I know uh, all three you're very proud of in your own way, Tom, and it's really, really been a pleasure to finally talk with you in person. And you and I will stay in touch. Uh, It's been a pleasure, my friend. All right. Well, thank you, George. I appreciate it. And I, I do want to say this. I've never been able to say this publicly to you, Tom. Uh, You have always been a great advocate for my book, Minnesota's Golden Age of Wrestling. Many times you've endorsed it, and I appreciate that, so I thank you for that. And I really hope Crowbar Press, the the Matt, the Mob, and Music, order it. You will love it. Tom, thank you for being on with us. Thank you very much. My pleasure. Have a good Christmas, my friend. Take care, Tom. For Wrestling Memories Online, I'm Glenn Broggett. So long for now.